You're so hip, I can't see past my pelvis. Oh, don't don't do that. <laughs> oh, no puns. I'm not allowed to do puns. No, I don't know. Welcome to Word After Word, a podcast on writing. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and with me as always is my co-host, the professor, David Hicks. Hello, Paul. Hello, David. We have not done this in a while, so... uh, I miss you terribly. I I miss you, too. It's good to be back on the mic, as the kids say. Yes. (laughs) I think that's what they say. No, they don't say that. Uh, So today on the program, we'll be doing things a little bit differently than we normally do, because today we have a twofer. Mm -hmm. Two writers will be joining us today for a bit of a roundtable discussion on the craft and process of writing. And it's a little different today because we have, um, instead of literary fiction writers, we have genre fiction writers. First up, he's an author and artist best known for his series of urban fantasy novels and graphic novels featuring the character of Felix Gomez, a vampire-turned-private investigator with titles that include The Nymphos of Rocky Flats, Jailbait Zombie, Steampunk Banditos, Sex Slaves of the Shark Island. If there was an award for great titles, it would go to Mario Acevedo. Uh, joining Mario is another acclaimed author whose series of mile-high noir crime stories have been nominated for and won numerous awards, including the 2014 Colorado Book Award for Mystery for Desperado, A Mile High Noir. His most recent novel is The Golden of Knight. Please welcome Manuel, Manuel Ramos. Manuel Ramos. Okay. Thank you. So what we typically do on the program is talk about the craft and process of writing. Uh, We try to get to know the habits of successful writers and maybe help others incorporate those habits into their own writing life. But before we do that, I want to ask each of you if there's anything you're working on or anything of note that you'd like to share with the listeners. Manuel, let's start with you. Uh, Well, The Golden Havana Night was just released like uh, two weeks ago. It's, uh, the subtitle is uh, Sherlock Holmey uh, Mystery. So it's uh, <laughs> fantastic. It's about my character from the north side of Denver, uh, Gus Corral, who grew up and was raised on the streets. And uh, in this particular book, he ends up in Cuba. And so that's where the title comes from, The Golden Havana Night. But uh, I want to mention it because uh, it's uh, number two on the uh, Denver Post bestseller list recently. So uh, it's doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Mario? Uh, well, I just wrapped up the launch of my uh, my Felix Gomez book, uh, Steampunk Banditos. Right now, I'm waiting to hear on a tour schedule for next for 2019. I'll go to like Comic Cons and things like that. That's that's the venue to sell. So I'm waiting on that and um, kind of finishing up some other projects, some other smaller projects, and then sort of sitting, not really deciding which way I'm going to go with my next book because you know it's like a year long process. So I have to. You have to be ready to dive into it. Excellent. Um, just uh, you both write crime and detective stories, uh, albeit you come at it from very different directions. I've often wondered: Do you start with so you have your crime, your mystery? Do you start with the solution and work backwards, or do you have a vague idea and sort of tell the story and get work your way to, towards the solution? I have kind of a vague idea of what I think the solution is going to be. Uh, meaning, I I know what way the story is headed, and it's mainly the the protagonist trying to f- figure out, trying to navigate the the ambiguities of uh, uh, of the the situation that he's in. Um, and it's really not till I get to the very end that I finally figure out, okay, this is exactly how I want the story to to wrap up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And um, even though I write fantasy, a, a, a detective story, I mean, a vampire story, a lot of people come to me and say, we know that you're a mystery writer because of the way the story is structured mm-hmm. uh, in that regard. And I like, I, I, and I like, what I liked about mysteries is the amb- the ambiguity in there and then all of the agendas that people have mm-hmm. and then even the good guys are lying to each other or, or mm-hmm. a lot of moral compromises that people have. And that's kind of what I really like in stories. Mm-hmm. Can you guys both talk about um, how how you structure? Because what I admire about your writing is how, how cleverly but also uh, sort of traditionally structured you're sort of taking structure of stories that we expect and some tropes that we expect, but you're messing with them a lot um, in, a, in really interesting ways. Uh, and I like that. I like that when I read. I like to sort of feel what I know it's coming, but then get get tricked. Can you talk about how you structure your stories? Yeah, sure. I'll try. Um, I mean, these are mysteries, and so part of the uh, attraction for a mystery story or crime fiction is simply that there's a puzzle and the reader wants to be involved in the process of figuring that out. So you have to write the book uh, with that in mind, that you can't give away too much, but you got to give away enough to keep mm-hmm. the reader involved and keep the reader thinking, uh, along with the detective or the protagonist. On the other hand, because it is a mystery, there has to be some element that's unknown and springs at the end. And so as a writer, I've got to feel that I'm surprising myself, too, when I write. Or I'm pretty sure the reader's not going to feel that. Mm-hmm. So my my writing is is the term is organic. You know, it, it the book and the story and the characters grow the more I write, uh, develop. Uh, so there's there's no preconceived notion of exactly how it's going to turn out. There's not an outline, and and really, if I overthink it, then the writing suffers. Mm-hmm. So I've got to go mm-hmm. with the flow. I've got to let the characters take me where they want to. Keep the um, energy going and make sure that I'm enjoying it myself as a reader as long as well as the writer so that uh, it fulfills its mission which is I want people to read the damn thing mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I, well yeah I, I agree with that and there's been uh, several of my stories where when I get to the end I the end doesn't quite work mm-hmm. that, that I thought that, that I wanted to go and then I go back and then I I end up going to a different ending uh, which to me is I, I more satisfying uh, to the reader especially so that's part of the surprise element of it is as the story's developed that a lot of the things you really don't don't know until you get to the end of the story the first draft and sometimes not even until the second draft and then all of a sudden you start finding things like oh this is where i need i need to develop the story here and then this other stuff cut that out because it didn't it didn't add to it and i and i and i think a lot about why that is Hmm. what is that because how is it that we're surprising ourselves if we think that we're in charge of the whole process? And, and I think a lot of it is the fact that we are actually psychologists ourselves, right? I mean, oh. Amateur psychologists. <laughs> and, and as a result of this, for example, when we, re- we write dialogue and we know why the dialogue is not working. Okay, mm-hmm. We think it does. And then we read it out loud and we go, oh, this is not why it's not working because we, we know in our mind how people react with one another. Okay. And and then we tend to and then we look back on that and say, well, actually, this is what they would really say. And so, if we're using dialogue, for example, to push the plot along, and then if it comes off across a stale, it'll come out in 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 our in our editing process. And then we have to go back and say, okay, what is it that that how is it that we really want to project on the page how we want the story to to evolve? 
Do you think that's coming from within you, like your own past experiences, or are you trying to be empathetic towards others that you've met or people that you know? Well, all of it, all of it. And, and, and sometimes even if you are trying to be empathetic, is that it's a different situation when you're writing in your story and then your, 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 your mind, your brain is looking at that and saying, okay, if this is where you really want to go, this is how you have to write it, okay? And you're going to have to, you're going to, have to change your experience to fit the story in, in this way in order for it to sound authentic. Okay. It's, you both you both write really good dialogue, and and what I see in beginning writers is uh, sort of flat pedestrian kind of dialogue, sort of generic dialogue. Did you guys work on that? Well, you, you were talking about dialogue. Do you, you work on you know putting a little zip and edge to the dialogue? You know, reveal like covering but revealing at the same time when you when you revise. You know, it all comes from the characters. You got to hear the character in your head, mm-hmm. uh, and and you got to understand where that person is coming from. Uh, so that's got to translate into what you what you put on the page, and the dialogue flows from that. I, I think uh, mm-hmm. if you do it enough, you know, it's all about experience and practice, practice doing it over and over until you understand that a certain type of character is going to talk in a certain way. And I, I listen as much as I can to real folks, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to people that I encounter. That's the research for a fiction writer, in my view, is paying attention. Mm-hmm and keeping notes uh, in your head, if necessary, of what people say, how they say it, what words they use, being very alert to what people are talking about in the streets, uh, in, in day-to-day life, and how they talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and dialogue is, is so key for me that, uh, you know, that's really how the story is going to get told. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try not, I, I, I write mostly from first person, but in, in one way that's liberating because I can put anything I want to in the main guy's head. And mouth, but also it's limiting because we only know what that guy knows as a reader. So the dialogue of all the other characters has to move the story forward, mm-hmm. and so it becomes very key in my work uh, that we that I work on that. And, and, and I was going to ask Mario if he's ever had the uh, encounter where you put some dialogue down and then you realize it's this other character that's saying it, and maybe you got it in the wrong guy's mouth or something. Like yeah, that that, hap- that happens a, a lot. I. When I write dialogue, and also when I have another character on the stage besides a protagonist, everybody has their own agenda. You know, we always say that everybody's the hero of their own story. So even if you have these other small minor characters that come into your story, they're in their own little world. They they really don't care what the protagonist is doing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that they happen to intersect in a certain way. So there's an agenda at work, whatever their little agenda is, okay? So I like to have that, press that. Because it makes the dialogue more authentic, all right? And have, have pushback on that. Um, sometimes, and I think about, like, the structure of the story. For example, we talk about, like, a sidekick in the story. And the sidekick can get away with things that the main character cannot, mm-hmm. right? Because he can say things, politically incorrect things, and you're mm-hmm. like... It's all right for him to say or her to say it, but if the, but if the protagonist says the same thing, then then all then you label the protagonist misogynist or whatever, right? Yeah, you lose faith in that. Character. Yeah, yeah, you lose yeah you lose faith in that in that character. So it's a very interesting dynamic that we have uh, that that you can use in in that. And and uh, but I've also had like um, I know I was talking about where I will have uh, some dialogue. We'll have one character doing something, and I go, well, really, somebody else should be doing this, not mm-hmm. not not the character that I think would be doing that. And then sometimes it's even the protagonist. You might have the secondary character do something, and you're like, you know, reality, why isn't the protagonist doing this? If it's yeah. if he's the driver of the story, why aren't they doing this particular mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. function? Or sometimes the, the, the other thing that I often tell people, ask the obvious question. Right? Yeah, right. Ask the obvious right. question, right? Get, why, why wouldn't 
like somebody's looking for something and somebody knows, why wouldn't you say it, yeah. right? Yeah. And, 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 and if you don't say it, it's kind of forcing the plot and you don't want to lose the readers saying, well, open your mouth and say something. You know? Yeah. That makes it more realistic, too. Yeah. Why did you kill that alien? Yeah, why did you kill that alien? <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. You know, Manuel Get- talked about uh, real dialogue, and you, you do this thing heard on Colfax where right. you re- sort of record mm-hmm. what you hear uh, around the bus stop, I imagine. That's how I imagine you. Uh, yeah. Anywhere along Colfax, and it also extends into Civic Park too. Uh-huh. So that's, I consider that part of Colfax. Uh-huh. Could you could you give us some uh, snippets that I have some of my favorites, but you know, some some of the things you've heard and written down in that is that a blog or where? Oh, it's I just on it's just on Facebook, uh, on Facebook yeah. and I do it mon- uh, Mondays and Fridays. Uh-huh. Uh, one of them was um, some of them you can't. Uh, well, one of them was uh-huh. my 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 tattoos are lopsided, but so are my boobs. <laughs> And, wow. uh, and then another one was uh, I know and I hear this stuff I mean and, and the other one oh this one because people say things and you're like how the heck can you make this up and this one I remember very distinctly I it was at that time where they, the, uh, the 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 free mall ride mm-hmm. they were doing some construction so the free mall ride this is in downtown Denver downtown Denver on 16th Street. Street Mall actually diverted going down uh, uh, Broadway where it intersected with Colfax and that was what stopped and you get off so this this was the route they had for about a month so I was there and there were these two um, girls behind me um, uh, middle school girls just chatting away and just before we got off one of them says to the other one you still have spit on your hickey you still have spit <laughs> on, your, on hickey. your hickey. And I'm That's like, great line. there's no way I could <laughs> make, make that, that up. up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, that, was, that was a great folk song, I believe. In <laughs> yeah, so, anyway, so anyway, that's kind of that, that, that dialogue that I have uh-huh. that, that you pick up. And it's very random. And like somebody once said, uh, you know, they said they were outside the Three Lions and they were saying um, they were just smoking cigarettes. And one of them just off the top of their head saying, you know. One thing I don't like about living in Colorado is you'll never see a whale. <laughs> well, duh. I've, yeah, I've often thought that. I've often thought that, yeah. <laughs> Only I could see a whale. I only see That's what's missing. Yeah. That's what's a whale. We need it, a whale. It, it is way off the migratory patterns. Yeah, so. yeah. 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 Uh, so that was, uh, I have no idea what the context was of that conversation, but that's yeah. what I heard. Uh, well, that gets back to, to, to follow up on the research angle. I mean, you said you do a lot of research. How long do you spend researching a novel before you dig into it? Well, I, I need to clarify, I guess. You know, for me, research is just being observant, okay. you know, watching folks, listening to folks. Uh, you know, I, I get ideas for stories walking around my neighborhood. You know, I, I live in North Denver, which was historically the north side and has now been morphed into, you know, Lodo, uh, not Lodo, uh, Low High and Highlands and Wi-Fi and whatever. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a different neighborhood, but, I, but I've lived there for 40 years. So okay. I walk around, I see the changes, I see the drama, the conflict that's going on, and that's my research. You know, okay. I, I can take that and turn it into a story. Mm-hmm. Listening to folks talk is all part of that. Watching how people interact on the corner, watching when the uh, newcomers encounter one of the old-timers on the street and you know, I pay attention to who's going to flinch first, you know, so that's my research. Okay. So you don't do well, I'll, into I'll, the history. I'll, I'll travel, you know, if, okay. uh, if I've, if I've got a, a scene in South Texas, you know, I've visited South or Cuba or Cuba. I, I had to go to Cuba, you know, you had my, to go to Cuba. my guy went to Cuba in the latest. Uh, so I do that kind of research and, and if necessary, I mean, I'm not above going to the library and looking stuff up, you know, I'd love to do that. So, 
But it's not uh, like every book requires me to do six months or a year's worth of that kind of stuff. It just depends on what it is I'm writing about. So, okay. how, how about you, Rocky Flats? Well, the, the I Frank, actually the Frankenstein family, the Frankenstein, yeah, yeah that that one, yeah, it just a lot of that was just Wikipedia research. Yeah. Uh, Rocky Flats actually worked there, so I was able to oh, pull, pull, pull pull that out. Wow. Uh, but I, I I I'm what they call a research slut. I will have to really <laughs> watch set a time limit because uh, I'll just go down those rabbit holes, and, yeah. it, and and it's really easy to do. And I like learning things, um, and and sometimes in doing that, I'll I'll I'll, I'll do it because. First of all, if I have some kind of information on, on in the story, I want to make sure it's correct. Okay, mm-hmm. and and also sometimes in the process of learning that, I'll, mo- I'll learn more about the context, what's going on. I might and I might use that in my in my story as well. For example, in steampunk banditos, it's a steampunk story, and then I went and was doing a lot of research into the West, right, post Civil War, and then it, interestingly enough, I found out because the, the story there was they were going to go to Tucson, Arizona. So I found out that after the Civil War, that there was a, a very large, in fact, probably rather, with the exception of some of the cities on the West Coast, that the largest settlement of Chinese Americans was in Tucson. Um, this is because they were they had brought a lot of the Chinese workers on the railroad, and then they started unionizing the railroad, and they're getting rid of the Chinese workers, right. chasing them out, and they ended up settling in Tucson because of the, of the way the railroad were connected. And things had li- had loosened up, so now the Chinese could start bringing their families in. And now, instead of being instead of being just railroad workers, the Chinese could start doing what they were really good at, was being merchants and bankers. So the first banks set up in Tucson were set up by the Chinese, and the first hotels there. And then also a lot of the African Americans, the slaves, uh, they would get on the train and they would over and they stopped in uh, Tucson. And Tucson was the first city in the United States to outlaw the laws prohibiting miscegenation, which is the, the marriage between the different races. Right. So, I mean, so I, so I kind of use that a little bit in my story. I mean, it, well, the story's not about that, but I'm like, oh, who knew? So mm-hmm. when they go to uh, to Tucson, the, the hotel is run by Chinese. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, so. Yeah, so it's little little details. To, yeah, to, little details that I To thought. spice things yeah, up. Yeah, to spice things up. That's great. Uh, I'm going to follow up on something that David had brought up, which is the, the use of tropes uh, in, with fantasy, especially vampires, how do you avoid falling into the trap, I guess you'd say, tried and true, well-worn What's tropes and cliches? Being, being tropey. Too tropey yeah. Yeah. Being tropey. Be too tropey. Oh, well, okay. I, I think in the literary world, trope has a bad connotation. Okay. okay. Oh, my God. They use tropes. And it's... It, 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 all they are is literary devices that you have. They're usually plot devices that you need in your story, okay? Mm-hmm. For example, if, you have, if you're writing a, like a mystery story, then you pretty much need an inciting incident with high stakes, okay? You're usually a body or the threat of, of a body. So that's, that, is, that is a particular trope, but that's necessary uh, uh, right. to the story. So if you use them, if you lean on them too much and if they get a little bit stale, then they, then they become cliches and they end up making your story very predictable and uh, and your character very predictable and flat and you and you why 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 should your reader care what's going on so um so your your job as a writer is is to is to use those tropes that you have and uh use them in the story but discard and alter them as you see fit for your own story um so I, do you, do you act, i'm sorry do you actively 
try to uh, subvert them and change them? I, well, in my, in my story, my, my Felix Gomez ones, my first one I actually I did because this is, my, uh, this is my big secret is I hate vampire stories. And I always hated wow. reading him. And it just so why not write one? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, no. What happened? Well, what happened was <laughs> is is that um, and and I've told this story many times, but I'll say here is that I I, I wanted to write big men's thriller action stories. That's what I wanted to write, and I could not get any of those published. So one day I was just and I and I tired of getting. I, I wasn't even getting rejection letters. It's like they weren't even bothering to tell me how to write. Right? Uh, so I, I decided, screw it. I'm going to write the most ridiculous story I can think about, which is a vampire detective investigates an outbreak of nymphomania at the Rocky Flats nuclear plant. So that was my idea. And then I started to flesh it out. And and then when I started looking at vampires, I, to me, the whole thing about vampires is kind of ridiculous. But then I said, I went to it from the premise, okay, what if they really lived? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, they need jobs because you can't have credit without a job and you can't fly on an airplane unless you have a credit card, right? So, and then, or they could have the whole thing about the vampire having his assistant putting him in like a, a casket and flying it somewhere. And I go, well, that's kind of stupid. Because the bad guys will figure it right away and blow the airplane out of the sky, right? So, um, obviously. Yeah, obviously, yeah. In my world, that's yeah. exactly what they would do. So, um, so I started looking at that and then I started looking at, okay, is it, uh, you know, vampires are supposed to be this very sexually predator character, right? Mm-hmm. But in my world, he's dealing with human women, and they will always outflank him, always outflank <laughs> him. You know, so uh, uh, so so I had you know, so I had fun with that. So yeah, um, so you do have the tropes where he needs blood, and and how to get around that mm-hmm. is that the the and they address things. You know, how how do you, how do vampires not get transmitted diseases right from blood, right? Yeah. AIDS or AIDS, right? So so I talked to they have a blood bank, so the vampires run the blood bank. Okay? <laughs> but the problem is that the blood that you get in a blood bank is a blood that comes from your veins. It's not arterial blood. Mm-hmm. And that's like the really good stuff, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that's kind of like right. the forbidden other. So anyway, there's a lot of things that you can play with with, uh, with, with the tropes. And, yeah, and so you put a lot of thought into this. Hopefully I yeah. put a lot of thought into <laughs> all of my writing. And it's, I'm going to have to go on a site. I hate when a writer says, he gets, he's gonna, uh, you know, gets up on the stage. Every word in my story is carefully chosen. And I'm thinking, like, if I just, as if the rest of us just get the dictionary and shred it and throw it right, in, right, in right. on a blender and just pull things out, right. you know. Yeah. Manuel, same for you. And I also want to add that you both have a lot of fun in your writing. Or, you know, I don't know if that's intentional, but I, I laugh when I read your stuff. Like, it's, uh, and I'm surprised by the humor, especially in the dialogue sometimes. Do you, I mean... This is supposed to be deadly serious. Noir, yeah. (laughs) Dark noir stories, yeah. But you're you're also having a little fun. Well, yeah. I mean, why do it if you can't have fun, right? I mean, nobody puts a gun to our heads and says, you got to write this book, you know. I mean, we're we're doing this because we want to, because some of us say we have to. You know, it's our our creative uh, expression, the way we uh, deal with life. On one level is to create these stories that... You know, entertain us as well as uh, keep us busy and keep us off the streets. So, you know, so if, if your question is, how do I use tropes? And well, like Mario, I mean, there are certain things that are expected in crime fiction. You got to have a crime. You got to have a criminal usually. And uh, but I play around with it a lot. I mean, I, I hope I do anyway because uh, I, I write noirs some of the time. You know, dark, atmospheric. There's a tone to it. There's a certain cynicism. But I also come at it from a Chicano's point of view. 
So, you know, I, I, that, that adds another layer to whatever it is I'm trying to create. Uh, so I bring in some culture, bring in some language, bring in some food, uh, bring in my family, you know, whatever it takes to to make the characters seem a little more realistic at that level. Mm-hmm. but uh, And I talk about this thing called Chicano Noir mm-hmm. that uh, has some of the characteristics of traditional noir, dark, uh, sometimes uh, bleak endings. But because we're Chicanos, you know, that I mean, that's life to us, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, you, if you grew up in the 50s like I did and you came from a, a huge Mexican-American family, you know, there's all kinds of dark stuff going on as well as funny stuff and as well as the very emotional, sympathetic stuff. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that gets tossed in there with my characters, I hope. And, and at the end, because we're Chicanos, because we're still surviving in this country, there's a bit of hope. Mm-hmm. one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And so my guy, Gus, he may be on his way to prison at the mm-hmm. end of the book, but still, you kind of think, well, didn't turn out too bad. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be okay. Something I've been interested in quite a bit is the business of writing and how it affects writers and how they write. Uh, so you're both very successful. Oh, you are. Don't, don't give me that look. Uh, <laughs> has having to sell the book changed how you write or how you approach a story? Well, I mean, how I write has changed over the years, but that's just because the more you do stuff, I mean, you, you learn from what you've been doing. I've never written for a particular audience except okay. for myself. I, you know, I'm the first person that's going to read this stuff, and, uh, and I'm writing something that I think I would want to read. And my second reader is my wife, and if she doesn't like it, it doesn't go any further. But I, I can't say, uh, and Maria and I were talking a bit about this earlier, you know, about writing for the market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what are you trying to do in terms of trying to sell your work? And so that's a serious consideration. I mean, I want people to read the book. I want everybody to read it. And so to do that, you got to sell it. And I'm willing to do things to, to, to hopefully sell books, uh, like podcasts and uh, <laughs> uh, presentations at the Tattered Cover and other bookstores and libraries. And I'll go talk. We, Mario and I have done several events together with the idea of we're trying to sell books. When I'm writing, I'm not thinking that way. You know, I'm thinking, uh, what's the best book I can write? You know, I, it's, if I knew what the magic lever was to pull... <laughs> to make me at the top of the bestseller list every time I would pull that thing. I would not and I would not tell you how it works. I would keep it so I, 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 I you know, I, I just know the general advice and like Manuel, I try to write the best book that I can. Um I you know I have I've seen in my circle of writers, it's very interesting how some have some kind of peaked and then and then moved on and then other ones are still kind of chugging away at it for various reasons and you never know where the fickle finger of fate is going to land and say wow you i, I for me it's going to be after 20 years after i'm dead you know i've already told my kids that this, this is it they're going to rediscover my books and, they, and they're going to see the, they're going to be the the metaphors of the late 20th, exactly. early 21st century. Yeah. Reissued classics. It reissued classics, exactly. New, exactly. New but I'll be dead, so what? Yeah. New covers. Yeah, it'd be like Van Gogh, right? Van Gogh yeah. was penniless, and yeah. then now he's the highest selling author yeah. of all time. I think yeah. a lot of people don't know, too, um, that when you sell books, uh, you make like a buck something a book. Like, it's, re- like yeah, it's yeah. really not, it's really hard to actually like make a living on your writing. So you end up supplementing that. I know you teach for the Mile High MFA. Uh, I, I know you guys do a lot of readings and appearances, and hopefully for some of them you get paid for, not unlike this this one. But, you know, you try to, uh, even if your book is selling well locally or whatever, it's still it's still a struggle. You still, you still have to put it out there and market it because otherwise nobody's going to buy it, nobody's going to hear about it. 
You guys do a very nice job. I mean, you're really well known, at least in Denver, at least in Colorado. Um, so I want to ask you about that. Like, uh, I, I guess I want to ask you about your friendship um, because you guys, you guys really click together, and your writing is different enough, right? It's it's very different from each other. So it provides a very entertaining evening when you guys read. But how did, how did your friendship develop? Uh, I guess I worked my way through to this question. How did your friendship develop, and uh, what do you guys do together? And what do you guys enjoy about each other? <laughs> it's like it's a bromance. Yeah, it's it's not. No. Bromance. I'm sitting right here. Yeah, I know. Right <laughs> I, I, the first one is we're friends. Yeah. No. 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 Um, no. Acquaintances. Acquaintances. Yeah. No. It's not. We're, we're friends. Uh, it's. It's. Uh, well, I, I think part of it is that we actually have similar backgrounds, like the Chicano thing, right? I mean, mm. that's. That's. I think that's what we really key on. And and uh, he he's from. Um, Southern Colorado. I'm from Southern New Mexico. There's a lot of similarities. At the same time, there's a lot of differences. Manuel's a little older than I, I am. He was in Denver when a lot of the... A little older. You had to say that. Well, I have to. I mean, okay, you're not a little older. We're exactly the same age. Uh, so, um, but he's got more hair than I do. Uh-huh, yeah, okay? smart. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. everything. So, um, uh, so... But he came to Denver, uh, and he was here during the, a lot of the Chicano protests, and um, and um, and he knew a lot of the people uh, there. I, you know, I was in southern New Mexico. I was. This is where the age thing comes in because yeah. I was I was uh, I was probably in middle school or my first years of high school. So it's really on the periphery of my, of my existence. The brown berets and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so it really that really didn't affect me like like it did Manuel because I wasn't right. involved in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then when I came to Denver, I was in my uh, late thirties. Okay, mm-hmm. and came to Denver to settle in. And we came from very, very different backgrounds. He was a lawyer here in Denver, hmm. uh, working with uh, legal services. Uh, legal services in that. I was, I was an engineer. Um, I'd been in the military. You know, so those these differences. But at the same time, I think a lot, a lot of the way we actually see the world is very similar because of the lens of, the, of being a Chicano. Okay? Yeah, and I'd agree uh, with but, that. And I, I seem to recall that uh, you know I was writing for La Bloga. Right. Uh, and, which has now been in like 15 years or something in, in existence. <clears throat> and I heard about this guy, this Chicano writer, who had been picked up by Ryo. Ryo, Ryo HarperCollins, yeah. HarperCollins, yeah, who was writing about a vampire private eye. And I, I remember I wrote an article about it. I said, who'd have thought that, that was the next thing? And, and then it turned out to be Mario, and, you know, he did a reading. I went to one of the readings. It was the next thing for about five minutes. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. Hey. And I think I think we met at one of your readings. Or, well, you you said you'd gone to one of mine earlier. Yeah, we, uh-huh. yeah, and, and it, yeah, it was your first book came out at the Tatter Cover. Oh, and there was like 300 people there, so and you didn't know Ooh, me wow. from Adam. Wow. That's the first days. Yeah. And then everything kind of peaked. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. You come up with uh, your first book, everybody's so excited. And then you got your second book and people are like, you wrote another book? I haven't even read your first one. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, we're running short on time. But before we go, I have to ask the most important question that this podcast asks. In the movie about you, which actor, living or dead, play you? Is there a movie called About You? No. Oh, your your, your life. Oh, my life. Pretend movie about you. Pretend movie about you. It'd be my dog. My dog, Scott. <laughs> he knows me better than anybody else. He's a good... I think Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> she fit perfectly in the image. I, I think you got a better butt. Oh. <laughs> that took a turn. Right at the end of the podcast. 
Okay. Uh, the butt end. Oh. <laughs> okay. Thank you both for, for coming. Uh, I really do appreciate your time. This has been a very great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. So that was our conversation with Manuel Ramos and Mario Acevedo, our two long-suffering guests that persevered through a deluge of technical difficulties, delays, and one of the hosts mispronouncing their names on several occasions. Not my finest hour. But they were troopers, and they were really patient and understanding, and the conversation that came out of it was fantastic. So I hope Manuel and Mario both will come back and join us again for another conversation under perhaps more ideal conditions. If you'd like to learn more about the authors, Mario can be found at MarioAcevedo.com, and Manuel can be found at ManuelRamos.com. And if you visit those websites, you'll find links to all their published works and, of course, links on where to buy those works. Uh, I'll also put links in the show notes of this episode. In addition, I'd also like to thank Regis University for use of their studio and their facilities, in particular Chris, our technician, whose help in getting those technical difficulties sorted out was a Herculean effort and much appreciated by David and myself. So to wrap up, I hope you liked the show, and if you did, you can visit our website at wordafterwordpodcast.com, where comments can be left on individual episodes. Or you can send us an email to comments at wordafterwordpodcast.com, and you can find David and I on Twitter. I'm at Daddy Elk, and David is at Hicks Writer. Give us a follow. Well, I guess the only thing left to say, on behalf of myself, Paul Matthew Carr, and David Hicks, thank you all for listening, and just keep writing. Word, a podcast on writing, is a Daddy Elk production.